0: I want to say uh, at the start of our time today that I, I firmly believe that some of the most gracious, saintly people in the entire world are middle school teachers. Um, do we have any middle school teachers in here? We did last out, right? Mm-hmm. they yes, saint. Um, and if, if you're not sold on that, I just want you to go back and think about yourself in middle school. Maybe you were awesome, but uh, I want you to think about some of your classmates and then I want you to picture the idea of spending eight hours a day with those people. That's what a middle school teacher does. I know for me, I, I want nothing to do with eight hours a day of middle school me. Okay? It, was, it was not fun. I was not an enjoyable person to be around, I'm sure, for any adult that was charged with my supervision, and definitely not when my friends got in the mix, um, but there, there are middle school teachers that actually enjoy that. I think there are a lot of middle school teachers that don't like being middle school teachers. But, you know, um, there are some who thoroughly enjoy it. And I think they are some of the most incredible God-like people that, that are on this planet. Because they love middle schoolers. Um, like, here, here's an instance from middle school that I vividly remember. Um, I remember it was seventh grade, and I was walking in the hallway during a class period. And I think I was allowed to be in the hallway during that class period. Um, I don't remember exactly why I got there, but, but I was in the, the hallway, and so the, the hall was quiet and it was empty, except for a conversation that was happening between one of my friends and his math teacher out in the hallway. And um, I was really intrigued by what their conversation might be about. And so I slowly walked closer to them. And I don't know what the first part of the conversation was, but it got louder as I got closer. And I I walked up and I I heard him say, very exasperated, but that's not fair. And his math teacher um, looked at him and then responded with all of the gentleness and grace that a middle schooler requires and said, Fair? Oh, really, fair. Let me tell you something. Fair is a place that you go to ride rides and eat cotton candy. This is life, okay? Life is not fair. So get tough and grow up. Got it? And he looked at her, and I don't know if he really got it or not. I don't. No, he didn't. But he knew that the only thing he was allowed to say is, yes, ma'am. And so that's what he said. He said, yes, ma'am. They went back in class, and I went on my way. And I will never forget the way that, that she just laid it out. Like, no, life is not fair. This is really hard, and I don't care if you don't like it. And, and I tell that story because I think today Peter says to a church in exile, hey, life's not fair. This is really hard. And that's hard to hear, but it's true and somebody needs to say it to us. And so if you want to get your Bibles out, we're going to be in First Peter again. As we look at a church that lives in a culture that does not like the church or its people. And Peter is instructing these people, how do we navigate life in a world that is hostile towards us? And what Peter makes abundantly clear, what he discusses maybe more than any other theme than Jesus directly, is that suffering is a part of following Jesus. It's it's impossible for us to go through life with Jesus without confronting suffering. And so much of suffering is not fair. Here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 12. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. Right? He said, listen, you guys are following Jesus. This is part of the deal. Don't don't be surprised that things are really hard. This is a church that, that was under intense persecution, and every day it got more intense as they grew. These are people that grew up in Jewish communities and families, and life is not fun following Jesus in a lot of ways. Their lives have been turned upside down, but not for all the good reasons that we like to say. People's world got turned upside down by Jesus. Peter is saying, listen, guys, you're following Jesus. This is part of it. Don't be surprised when suffering comes. And I think a lot of us can intellectually nod our heads to the reality that suffering will come when we follow Jesus. We get that, maybe we've heard that before, that there's something, yeah, we can nod our heads to that until that suffering becomes really unfair. Because anything that's unfair is hard for us, whether it has to do with Jesus or anything else. Things that don't line up with our sense of right and wrong are hard for us to process. But Peter, not only does he say that suffering is a part of the deal, Peter says that your suffering will be unfair. And actually, the suffering that you should look forward to most is the suffering that is most unfair. What do I mean? Let's read it. He says it multiple times. In chapter two, verses 19 and 20, he says, it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, then it is commendable before God, right? Peter's saying, listen, if you suffer because you deserve to suffer, that's not that impressive, right? If you do a horrible job and deserve punishment for what you have done, and then you're punished. Nobody says, wow, what incredible character. He got what was coming to him, right? That, that's not, no, the only thing that, that stands out is when you suffer and you don't deserve it. He goes on in chapter three, verses 13 and 14. Who's gonna harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Verse 17, he says, for it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Chapter four, verse 15, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Right, What Peter is saying and what he has been saying to these, these people in, in the church that is suffering, he's saying the way that you share the gospel with the world around you while you are in exile is that you live lives that look like Jesus. When people see you, they should see Jesus. When Jesus comes back, they should recognize him because they have seen him in your lives. And what Peter is saying is that one of the places that people might most clearly see Jesus in your life is when you are suffering for Jesus. And actually, if you're suffering just because you're a jerk, we're not gaining anything, right? And that's something that I run into a lot. I think a lot of us feel like we face persecution because we're Christians, but really we face persecutions because we're jerks. Right? If you're unbelievably sarcastic and and don't have any grace for someone in your life and are very uh non-diplomatic in the way that you say things, right? If you have no tact, there's a good chance that people aren't going to like you and that has nothing to do with Jesus. That has everything to do with you. That's not what Peter said. Peter is saying that's not that's not a good look. Okay? As you are living out your time in exile, it is not enough To settle for the same standard that everybody else has, which is if you deserve suffering, then you might as well just take it. Peter's saying, actually, you should look forward to it when you suffer in the name of Jesus, because when you do that, you look like Him. But that's not fair, right? And maybe we can intellectually agree again that when we suffer, Unjustly, when we suffer unfairly, that that's a chance for the world to see Jesus, and that's fine, but like everything else in exile, the new rules of living in exile, it's fine until it meets real life. Right? I can nod that suffering may be a part of the Christian experience. Maybe it will happen to me because I'm associated with Jesus, but Jesus says to be blessed, Peter says to be blessed when that happens. But what about like a football coach in Washington that says, I want to allow my my players 15 seconds of silence in the middle of the field at the end of a game. And we're going to invite the other team to do it because we see NFL teams do it all the time. And, And that 15 seconds is for them to pray. What happens when the coach who does that is fired because that's against what the school district in Washington wants their coaches to do? Right? Did he harm anyone? Did he do anything wrong? Who, who was jeopardized by allowing students to have 15 minutes of silence after a game to be thankful that they lived to play another day and they got to compete with their friends? That's not fair. What are we supposed to do when that happens? That's not suffering that any of us want to sign That cost him his job because he let players have 15 seconds of silence after a game. The new rules of exile are really, really hard to navigate when they meet real life. How is it that we're supposed to be faithful and trust that God's good plan is being worked out on our behalf by God when the world is very, very unfair? I think Peter gives three, three main rocks that the church is supposed to recognize, that we can recognize today. Right, the first one is that if we are going to be faithful, enduring unfair suffering, we have to remember who our enemy is. Okay. Chapter 5, Peter identifies who the enemy of the church is. Right, verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Okay. This is the first person in the entire letter that Peter has identified as an enemy. Already, Peter has identified the emperor and governors that oversee the public execution of Christians. Right? These are people that are okay with burning Christians alive at the stake, having them torn apart by wild animals, beheading them in front of their family. And Peter does not call those individuals the enemy. Peter doesn't call abusive slave owners enemies. He doesn't call spouses who take advantage of each other enemies he says there is one enemy that enemy is the prince of lies and one of the greatest lies that he would have you believe is that the people around you are in fact the enemy but if you are going to navigate life in exile as faithful followers of Jesus you have to understand there is only one enemy And the people around us, whatever side or ideological position they might have, they are not the enemy. They may have bought into lies that the prince of lies has given them, but they are not the enemy. If you are wanting to navigate life as an exile, the left is not the enemy. The right is not the enemy. The poor, the rich, the elite... The addict, the black, the white, the Muslim, none of them, whatever group you might have in your mind as the other that is a danger to our faith, they are not the enemy. In fact, they are made up of people who were created in the image of God that he desperately desires to have a relationship with. They are people that you should hope are future brothers and sisters in the family of God with you. And you do not begin a relationship with someone hoping for their best by identifying them as the enemy. No, Peter says the enemy is someone who is not of this world. And he has all sorts of methods of invading this world, but that's the enemy, not your neighbor around you. Those people that you are living such good lives in front of, they are not the enemy. They are people that you should every day hope to point towards Jesus. The other weapon that the enemy has is anger. And so often our response to persecution, our response to suffering, particularly unfair suffering, is anger. Right? And it's so easy to justify it. It is so easy to jump to it because anger, the bigger and hotter and louder it is, will generate very quick results. Right? If you want to change something fast, one of the easiest ways to make that happen is by getting really angry. Except anger doesn't ever make things better. Anger does not ever bring healing. Anger is not something that Peter tells the church they need to embrace. Rather, what God instructs his people to and instructs them to over and over is sadness. Right? When our response wants to be anger, I think we have to ask, why do we want to be angry? And is anger really the primary emotion that we have? Or is anger something that comes out of a deep sadness that exists because the world is not the way we know it should be. And so am I angry at that person or am I sad and broken by the fact that they are not living in God's kingdom? That they have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good like I have. And if I'm sad if I'm sad that our world is the way it is, if I'm sad that the world around us does not embrace Jesus the way that I wish the world would, well, I don't have to be angry at anyone. I can sit with my sadness. I can ask God to meet me in my sadness. And I can have him move me to hope. Historically, in the church and in the the Jewish nation, we've called holy sadness lamenting. Right? And last month in service, we, we had a time where we corporately lamented loss. And just that this world is not the way that we hope it would be. And it's okay for us to come to God and say, we are saddened by the situation that surround us. Yet at the same time, in our sadness, we are still anchored to the hope we have in you how much different would an outrage culture be if everyone that professed the name of Jesus, rather than respond in anger and rage, said, this makes me sad. This makes me sad that these are the things that we value. And I wish we could learn to value the things that God does because I think his way is best. I love you the way that God does. Man, that's a completely different response. So, we've got to remember who our enemy is. Second thing we have to remember is that we, particularly as Christians in the West today, we've got to move the goalposts when it comes to suffering. Right? Right? We've We've got to change the metric by which we measure suffering. Peter goes on right after describing who the enemy is. He says in verse nine, resist him, the devil, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. If we wanna remain faithful in exile, we have to remember that we are not the only people in exile. We are not the only people who have ever been in exile. And the persecution that we face most likely in America, will never in any distorted sense of where the world might go, will equal the persecution that our brothers and sisters around the world face today, have faced for centuries, and we're facing in the church to whom Peter is writing. Right? These are people who watch their families torn apart, who watch their loved ones killed as a display of power by the government, All over the world, we have brothers and sisters who meet in secret at night on random days of the week so that their village neighbors don't know when they're meeting to attack them. Now, that is not to say that our suffering is minimal. It's not to say that our suffering is not valid. It's not to say that we can't be sad by it, but we do need to put it in perspective. Right, if as bad as things get for us is that there's some awkward water cooler conversation or that we experience some FOMO on Saturday when we're not invited to something, right? Or that, that some random white girl in New York made a tweet that made us mad. Like, I, I think we can get over that. I think we've got to grow some thicker skin as the people of God. God does not need us to fight his battles for him. He is not worried about the latest Facebook video. He's not, it's not keeping him up at night. Rather, God is asking us to be faithful, to trust him, and to love our neighbors. Right? We can leave, leave shouting matches for the world to have. We can leave politics for the world to have. We can leave backstabbing for the world to have. Peter goes on, he says that actually, when you suffer, you need to see it as a blessing, right? Chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, we read a little bit ago. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what's right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory rests on you. Verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. Jesus is very clear that following him will bring persecution, Following him will bring suffering. Peter is not just saying this as a professor somewhere sitting in his academic ivory tower. He's saying this as the the man who followed Jesus around for years and watched Jesus suffer for loving people. Who was told over and over by Jesus, you are going to suffer if you follow me. Who watched Jesus crucified for preaching love. Peter, who spent time in jail. Peter, who faced... Multiple threats. Peter, who was executed for his faith in Jesus. Peter is saying, actually, when you suffer, you get to join Jesus. You will never look more like him than when you suffer well, because what Jesus did was suffer well. And it's when we suffer well that our neighbors will ask why? And that's when we're supposed to be ready. Right? Peter says in chapter 3, and this is this is our, our third thing that we have to remember. I don't want to get ahead of myself. If we want to be faithful in exile, we have to anchor our hope and our lives in Jesus. Right? As we move into post-Christian America, we, we have enjoyed religious freedom in incredible ways in this country. And religious freedom is wonderful, we should, we should express it, we should speak, we should not be, be silent and shrink away from our culture, but we also need to recognize that, that our hope is not found in religious freedom, or any political agenda, or any power that this world would have to offer. Our hope is found in Jesus, and Jesus alone, and when we suffer well, we look like Jesus. Jesus. And then our neighbors ask, why? And so Peter says again in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Right, live such good lives that when they see you, they see Jesus, and they ask, "Why would you do that?" Now, here's, I, I do not believe that our world is looking to us for preaching on morality. I don't think that our world is is looking for for us to say what we are for or against. I do think that our world is desperately looking for hope because I think our world can very easily identify the same thing that we can and that what we have is not working. Right? And what people might want to know is why someone would willingly suffer for the name of Jesus. Because the thing is, nobody willingly suffers unless they have hope in something that is better than anything the person making them suffer has to offer. Right? The early church, despite executions, despite unbelievable persecution, it grew. It flourished. Because what the people of the early church had found was a Jesus that offered them a hope no empire ever could. Right? It was a hope that, that superseded any bit of unfair suffering they might experience. The reality is the reason that we, as followers of Jesus, can can live through and endure and actually rejoice in the midst of unfair suffering is because we live rooted in a gospel that is unfair. If our hope is built on Jesus and His good news, we have built our lives on something that is unfair. What I mean is that you and I, as people, we have messed this place up. Right? We have sinned. We have fallen short of a holy standard. We have brought destruction into our own lives and the lives of others. We have destroyed relationships that we have horizontally and vertically. We have screwed this thing up. The, the, the wage of that, the thing that we deserve for that is death. And yet... Despite our selfish, prideful, violent, power-hungry agendas, God enters our world as a servant who preaches a radical message of love and is crucified. And as Peter says, as Paul says, everything that we deserved was placed on him. And all of his righteousness was placed on us. And because he walked out of a grave two days later, three days later, new life, his new life is now our new life. That's not a fair proposition. That is not a fair transaction. We deserve death. Jesus takes death for us so that we might have life and righteousness. No, that is not fair, but it is good. It is the best offer that anybody's got. Peter reminds the church of it again in chapter 2. in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. That is the news that our world is very, very hungry for. People want to know what would make someone willing to suffer unfairly. People want to know what could actually change my life. I don't think that the world is hungry for, for more pithy ideas or, or greeting cards or fish stickers on our cars, right? Like that, that's not the thing that the world is desperately reaching for. How do I get the, the Ichthus fish on the back of my sedan? Right? The world is not hungry for more TED Talks. TED Talks are great, But what the world wants is not just another five-minute presentation on a neat idea. What the world wants is truth that can actually change our lives. What could actually make my reality different? What could give me hope when everything around me says this is hopeless? What could make my fragmented life whole? Is there anything that can actually make this place better? And as Jesus' followers, we say absolutely there is. There is a hope we have in him that is greater than anything else. Not only has he paid the price for us, not only has he given us new life, But he is redeeming all of creation back to himself, and he has invited redeemed people like us to be a part of that. And there is love and grace available to you if you want it. That is good news. We have to know that news if we want to survive in exile. We have to be ready to tell anybody who wants to listen to that news. We have to move the goalposts. We have, to, we have to grow up a little bit. We gotta get tough. Right? And if, if we're not tough enough, just get off Facebook. Don't listen to cable news. We, we, we gotta get okay with following Jesus into hard places because Jesus is faithful to walk through any hard place we might find ourselves in. And there's nobody else who's got that track record. Peter says, sort of in the end of his teaching of his letter, chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter says if you're a follower of Jesus you know how this ends the one who beat death beats everything else and regardless of what you go through right now he is faithful he wins and he will see you through to the very end and so trust in him regardless of what comes with that trust him So, where does that meet real life? What do we do with that? I said you know, earlier, one of the things, we, we've got we've to learn how to not be angry. We've got to learn how to not respond with anger because our anger is often directed at the very people that we're supposed to be loving. And so we need to learn, we need to learn how to be sad. We need to learn how to lament. We need to learn how to bring our, our, our woes to Jesus and allow him to meet us in sadness, anchored in hope. And so I don't know where you are today with Jesus, where you are in your journey of walking with Jesus or trusting him in every aspect of your life, but I want us to corporately take a moment and let's just be sad together with Jesus. Let's be sad with each other that this world is not the place we wish it would be. And, and maybe you can't, we're gonna put words up on the screen the way we did last month where you know, it'll say leader, people, I'll read the leader part, you read the people part. And, and we'll read it out loud together. And, and maybe you can't say every word that's up there and, and mean it with everything you have this morning. Um, a lot of times when we're in sadness, it's hard to, to make bold statements. But sometimes that's why we need words to be written for us, to say the things that we want to say, but we don't know how to say them ourselves. And so I encourage you, sort of wherever you're at, just I encourage you to speak with us, to affirm with people in this room that this world is not what we wish it was. But in the midst of all of that, there is a God who gives hope greater than anything this world has to offer. So I invite you, let's stand and let's pray together. Dear Lord, pain and suffering were not your design for creation. Yet every day, we see and experience devastating evidence of their presence in this world. Our hearts break at all the ways things are not as they should be. How long must it be this way? How long must we endure a world like this one? A world in which We regularly mourn senseless acts of terror, violence, and hate. And our children rehearse active shooter drills. A world in which political fights pit us against one another. And words are weapons to tear down those who disagree with us. A world in which we have greater access to information and connection than ever, but we are more fragmented and isolated from real relationships than ever a world in which people long for good news, but the gospel has been dragged through the mud. Lord, we repent of the ways we have compromised our faith in the name of power. We repent of suffering we have inflicted on others, whether well-intentioned or not. May we, through our gentleness and humility, point the world towards you. Jesus, we do not look forward to or enjoy suffering, but you did not look forward to or enjoy the cross. May we, through our suffering, point the world towards you. Lord, we know you are the victor, the conquering king. We know you will set all things right. We know all of creation is being redeemed through your love. But so often your kingdom feels very distant. May your kingdom come, and may it come soon. Make us strong, firm, and steadfast in you. To you be the power forever and ever. Amen.